Well, we're going to continue our series I've been doing called On Earth As It Is in Heaven. And we think about that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And he talked about your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and we've been kind of walking through and say, if there is this kingdom that's different from the rest of the world that Jesus talked about and he wanted to bring from heaven to earth, then it, it just shouldn't just be something we pray. It should be something that we actually practice in a consistent basis, on a consistent basis in our lives. But that's hard. And Jesus taught a lot because he was going against a culture that was very different from what God's kingdom was supposed to be, even in that first century. And he wanted to teach people through these stories called parables and his consistent way he treated people that this is what God's kingdom looks like. And he taught a lot. So we've been kind of walking through that. But to start today, I want to share a story. Uh, John Ortberg is a, a pastor and a author. He's written a lot of books. And he talks about, uh, he wrote an article a few years ago in a leadership magazine talking about curing, curing grandiosity. And he talks about a psychologist whose name was uh, Milton Rokich, and he wrote a book called, now listen, this is an interesting title, The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. Ypsilanti is a place in Michigan, is a town in Michigan. And he describes his attempts to treat these three patients that were in this psychiatric hospital in Ypsilanti, Michigan, who suffered from delusions of grandeur. Not just any delusions of grandeur, each really believed that they were the savior of all the world. They had been called to save the world. They believed they were the Messiah, and they displayed full-blown cases of this grandiosity in its pure form. So the doctor found it difficult to break through with these three patients and accept the truth that you're really not the Messiah. That's not who you really are. You need to know your true identity. So he decided to put these three guys in community together to see if maybe rubbing against people who also claim to be the Messiah, to be the Savior of the world, it might dent their delusion a little bit. And maybe uh, it was kind of a a messianic 12-step program, if you will. So this led to some interesting conversations he talks about. He said, one would claim, I'm the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I was sent here to save the earth. And the doctor said, I would ask him in front of the others, how do you know this? And he said, God told me. And one of the other patients would answer, I never told you such a thing. (laughs) Now, we laugh about that, but these people really had these psychiatric problems where they believed this. And every once in a while, one would get a glimmer of reality, never deep or for long enough, because it was so deeply ingrained in their belief system that they were and had this Messiah complex. But what progress the doctor made was pretty much made by when he did bring them together. Now, I know that's a crazy idea, taking a group of deluded would-be messiahs and putting them together in this community to see if they could be cured, but it has been done before, Ortberg explains. If you think about it, in the Gospels on probably twice, if not three times, Jesus' disciples knew he was the Messiah. They saw the power he had through his miracles, through all that he did and said and taught. They, he had to be from God. But yet, in at least, like I said, two or three occasions, they said to Jesus, or were arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. 
Jesus never taught that. Jesus never gave them that kind of impression that they need to be worried about who was the greatest, but yet they were still jockeying for positions to know who was the greatest. So if you think about it, this is kind of where Jesus put these different guys together who wanted to be great, but yet he constantly had to be teaching them what God's kingdom was really like. Now we are going to look at a text from Matthew's Gospel Day. Now we've been in chapter 13 for a long time, and so we're going to skip from chapter 13 today all the way to 18. Not, I'm not saying 14, 15, and 16, and 17 are not important because they are very important. A lot of good stuff in there. Jesus walks on water. He feeds 5,000. He feeds 4,000. Uh, chapter 17, right before this chapter we're going to look at today, is what's called the Transfiguration uh, in which Jesus takes three of his disciples up on a mountain and he has this, he is transfigured before them and they literally hear the voice of God explaining to them who Jesus is. And so they have this experience there. But last week we looked at the parable of the net in which Jesus described God's kingdom as like a net. And it wasn't just any net, it was a drag net in which it catches everything in its path. And you drag it several times through the lake and try to catch everything. And Jesus eventually explained that that's how God's kingdom is trying to catch everything in its path. And yes, Jesus explained that there would certainly be this judgment at the end after the net is completely what? Does anybody remember? Full. Thank you very much. Okay, He wants it to be full, not just in, uh, include a few people here and there that think like us and believe like us, but he wants to include everybody. And he says, yes, there will be certainly a judgment, but not till the end of the age when the net is full. And none of us get to do that judgment because we're going to screw it up. Only God's angels at his command will do that. And we also saw that through the actions of Jesus in the gospel, this kingdom that Jesus is talking about, telling these stories about, he lives it out. He doesn't just talk about it and teach about it. He literally, consistently and constantly casts a wide net and tries to include everybody and invite people from all different walks of life to experience the mysterious yet literal powerful love that is a part of God's kingdom. And although Jesus' disciples are constantly hearing Jesus' teaching, they're hearing these stories, they're hearing what he's teaching about, they're seeing the way he treats people, even though they find it odd. Why are you talking to them? Why are you including them? This is odd to them. Jesus has told them this over and over, and he's practicing it. They still have this exclusive attitude, don't they? They still want to maybe have a, a smaller net. They don't want to have a wide net. They want to kind of keep it to certain people, and they... they you know, scratch their heads, Jesus, what are you doing here? And they kept wanting to cast this smaller net. So we're going to look at our text today and see how Jesus responds because of the fact that they're even asking this question of who is the greatest shows that you're not listening. You're not understanding my kingdom. And this is probably two years into Jesus' ministry and they're still thinking about these things. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 18 and we're going to go through verses 1 through 9. Listen to what Jesus says. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who, then, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes such a child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck 
and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Man, it started off so sweet with a little child. And then there's that hell stuff again, Craig. You just had to bring that in, didn't you? That's what Jesus talked about, y'all. We have to talk about it. We have to look. But Jesus had something that really got him fired up about this trying to put yourself first and be greatest that he had to speak about. The two other gospel accounts that talk about the disciples and they're arguing over who's the greatest is, is Mark, the gospel right after Matthew, and then Luke. And they have a little different story about this. The disciples are going somewhere with Jesus, and along the road, they're arguing literally about who's the greatest, and they don't really realize that Jesus is overhearing this. So when they get to where they're going, Jesus goes, hey, what were you guys, what were you guys arguing about? Uh, nobody would say anything. But Jesus knew they were arguing about who was the greatest. So they don't say anything. And some believe that Matthew, because he was one of the disciples that was with Jesus, that he actually said they just got silent. And maybe finally he goes, okay, you're right. We were talking about who was the greatest. You caught us. But then he asked the question or one of them, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Since you caught us red-handed arguing about it, who is? Explain to us, Jesus. But even in Mark... Even in, in Luke and in Matthew, they do the same thing in, in, in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel. They, Jesus brings a little child into the middle of them and said, this is the object lesson for today. And we think it was a very small child, a very dependent child, probably three years old or below. And in Matthew's account, Jesus calls this little child to stand among them. And this is something that I've missed for years. But he says, unless you change, I always heard it as, unless you become like a little child. But he says two things, unless you change, and then become like a little child, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. And so I'm sure they're going, we're talking about greatest, and you bring a little kid in here? That's not how God's kingdom is supposed to operate. That doesn't make sense. And Jesus goes, you need to listen, because you're missing it. Change what, Jesus? We have to change what? The way you think, the way you see the world, your worldview needs to change. The way you see others, the way you perceive and judge and value people like the rest of the world. You guys are being just like the Pharisees and Sadducees that are not bringing people into connection with God but excluding them from God. That's not how God's kingdom is. Jesus was aware of the cultural views. He was aware of the behaviors and the way people treated one another in his particular culture and the very fact that his disciples are arguing about or even asking this questions shows they need to change their thinking they were exclusive in their thinking they were self-centered in their thinking they were they had seen Jesus power over and over again they'd seen the miracles and they had heard about his kingdom and they had been with him like I said for probably two years now but there's still elements that they miss And I mentioned in chapter 17, right before this chapter, is the transfiguration. And I know that sounds weird. And when you read that, you go, that was weird. What was that all about? Why did that need to take place? But it was important. As I said last week, all Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And God lets us know what we need to know about Jesus and his life. 
But Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on this mountain, and they literally see him transfigured before their eyes, and they can't believe this supernatural thing they're seeing. And they see Moses, and they see Elijah standing there talking to Jesus. And how did they know it was Elijah and Moses? That tells us something about we will be able to recognize people when we are resurrected. Just might want to put that in your head, which is great. But naturally, they knew that Jesus was from God. And after this experience, they see him transfigured before them. And then they audibly hear God's voice say, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. They've just come down the mountain from this experience. And maybe, maybe Peter, James, and John go, You know what? He picked us to go up there. And we just saw that. And we just heard that. So we must be really special. And maybe it's gone to their head a little bit. And they're thinking they're the greatest as they're talking about this. But as they're thinking about all these things, they're also thinking, we've seen Jesus' power. We've been to a wedding with him. He turned water into wine. We've seen him heal people. We've seen him walk on water. We've seen him raise someone from the dead. We know he has to be from God. All we're waiting for is this rule that he's finally going to, he's talking about this kingdom. We're tired of hearing about the talk. We're ready for the rule to take place and we're ready for him to be a political or military leader and free us from Rome and their oppression. And we're ready to be there and be a part of this takeover. And Jesus going, you guys don't understand about my kingdom. So he says, let me bring a little kid in here and show you what I'm talking about. So he presents this little child and they're thinking, greatness This is who is great, Jesus. Children in the first century in the East were not seen quite like they are in our 21st century Western world. They weren't looked at as everything, and everything revolves around them. Was there anyone probably in this culture that was maybe on the human scale, maybe lower than a child? Probably not. Hardly anybody. They were completely dependent even vulnerable, and even kids today are definitely vulnerable, definitely dependent. But the kids in that culture really had no power or status. They couldn't work. They couldn't make money. They couldn't provide anything for others. They had very little rights in that culture, whether they were Jewish or Roman. And for they were entirely subject to the authority of their father, again, under Jewish law and Roman law. And for many adults, they looked at children, hurry up and grow up. Don't stay in that state any longer than you have to. Become an adult as quick as you can and start becoming a responsible and contributing member of society. And this is who Jesus puts up to say, this is who's the greatest. And his disciples are going, what? We have to change the way we think and we have to become like that? That doesn't make practical sense, Jesus. We definitely need to change our mindset because that's not what I'm thinking about when I think of great little children. What in children is a good quality that we should change and become like that? But is that even what Jesus is saying? If you can just become like little kids and their qualities, wait a minute, then we're becoming something. No, he's not saying they, because quite honestly, we know some kids that are brats, right? Even that if it's your own, your own kids or your grandkids or teachers, God bless y'all, y'all work miracles, but you know... They can drive you crazy, and they can be selfish. They can be um, obnoxious and demanding. But Jesus is saying, no, it's dependent. They're not self-reliant. Being able to ask when they have a need, they're willing to do that. Mama, mama, mama. Daddy, 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 I need, I need, I need. Teacher, teacher, teacher. (laughs) You know, 
They're willing to ask. And how many of us during this whole year have called people and asked them if they need anything? And they say, oh, no, I'm good. I got this. And you find out later they weren't good. They did need something. But we're afraid. We're too proud to ask for things. Being humble, recognizing that we aren't the greatest. I'm not the strongest. I can't do everything. Recognizing others have to go before me. But when we think of little kids, sometimes we don't necessarily think of sweet and innocent and humble. We do think about, like I said, obnoxious and demanding. But even those kids are still dependent, aren't they? Part of the reason they're doing some of that is they are dependent and they know they have these needs for everything in their life. And I believe more than anything else, Jesus is telling his disciples and he's telling us today that we are too self-dependent. We think we've got it all figured out. We can take care and handle everything uh, ourselves. But we really don't. We're like those little kids that really do are dependent. But we try to present images on our phones. Oh, look at this cool TikTok. Look at me. Look where we are. Look what we did. And we think we've got it all figured out. And sure, we'll ask God to step in and fix things when they go awry. But for the most part, we've got this. We've got this all by ourselves. We know how to handle things. And then when we handle a few things pretty good, guess what we think? (laughs) I'm good at this. Matter of fact, I'm so good, I I need to handle your stuff for you. And that goes over well, doesn't it? And then people start to say, you're trying to handle this stuff for me. And then we get in other people's business and we know how to handle everything. And then we start this comparison game and we get online and we have to comment on everything because why do they get to? How come they said that? Let me tell you what I think about it. I deserve to have. I'm better than. I work harder than. I'm smarter than. My view is better than. And we get into all of that thinking that we're greater And Jesus saw what was happening among his own disciples, that they were becoming like the culture, the religious culture. And they needed to change their thinking and their worldview. And they needed to become dependent on the Father like little children are. And he said, unless you did, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, it had to have them wondering again, what is this kingdom? Jesus, what is this kingdom? What could it possibly accomplish if we have to change and become like little kids? How are we going to defeat Rome? How are we ever going to come out from under Rome's thumb if we become like little kids? That's what we already feel like. We cower every time we see a Roman soldier. They're taxing us to death. What in the world? And you're telling us to become like a little kid? But we ask the same thing, don't we? I'm not going to shut up. I don't like our government. And I'm going to let everybody know I don't like our government. See, that's if we become like little children, if we become dependent, that's the problem, see? We're letting them run all over us. we got to do something. We're not going to change this world and our country by acting like a bunch of little kids, Jesus. Or are we? Even in the church over the years, we sometimes speak of children as if we say, hey, kids are the future of the church. The kids are a present part of the church right now. And they can teach us some things. And maybe we should go down there at that hall and we can, can watch. And I'm not saying they're perfect because we know they can be brats. Mine, definitely. But there's things that they're more dependent upon than we are that we can learn. I think that's what Jesus is saying. I want to share a story I, I read this week. Uh, a lady named Marlene Lefebvre wrote this story, or she reported on. Um, 76 years ago... In Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, there was a congregation watched as three little nine-year-old boys came forward and accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior and were baptized into Jesus that day. But shortly after that, the church was already in 
decline, serious decline. And the church shortly after that had to close their doors, sold the building, and, and that was the end of that church. And they disbanded. But one of those little boys, 76 years ago, his name was Tony Campolo. I don't know if y'all know who Tony is. Um, written a lot of books, was a sociology professor for years at Eastern College in the University of Pennsylvania. And he says, our, years later when I was doing research in the archives of our denominations, I decided to look up the church report of the year of my baptism. And I found it. And I looked and there was my name, Tony Campolo. And there was my friend's name, Dick White. He's now a missionary. And the other little boy's name was Bert Newman. Now he's a professor of theology at an African seminary. And all our names were there. And then I read at the bottom the church report for that year for our church. And it said this. It has not been a good year for our church. We have lost 27 members. Three joined, but they were only children. But what happened to those three little boys? A missionary, a theological professor, Tony Campolo did a little but all of that. Now think about, I don't want to beat this church up because... Somebody at that church taught those little boys that they needed to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And somebody taught them about what was in the Gospels. And somebody led them to the point where those three little boys said, we want to name Jesus as our Savior and we want to follow Him into our adulthood. And they did that. And look at what happened. So I think about that church and I think about, did they ever know they may have disbanded, but they had a part in continuing God's kingdom work, didn't they? By doing what God had called them to do, even though they eventually had to disband. But their, what they continued allowed God's kingdom work to, be, to reach people in places and times beyond even the church disbanding, more than they could ever imagine. And that is what's called dependence. Those little boys didn't realize that their church was going to disband. They just knew that somebody in that church that loved them told them about this kingdom of God that God had created them to be a part of. And they believed that. They were humbled by that. And they came willingly to be a part of that. And if the disciples looked at Jesus funny during this object lesson with a child, maybe Jesus even sensed that. He maybe sensed them going, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not doing that. That's stupid. I don't want to have to become dependent. But Jesus is going, you're missing the point. And I think Jesus sensed that because he kept going. And whoever welcomes such a child in my name welcomes me. And if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it will be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And when he's saying a large millstone, he's not talking about one you use at home. He's talking about one of these big things. You ever seen the one? I always think about the one at Stone Mountain. Y'all know what I'm talking about? It's huge. And he's saying when you cause little ones to feel like they're not a part of God's kingdom or anybody that's been marginalized to feel like they're not a part of God's kingdom, you are causing them to stumble. It's not a good thing, he's saying. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Those will happen. But to those who, the person through whom they come, that's a serious offense. Don't be that person, Jesus is saying. And he says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, you, it's better to cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, it's better to gouge it out. And we go, oh, that's hyperbole. He didn't really mean that. But there's some things in our lives, in my life, that I really need to get rid of. And it needs to be some kind of surgery, serious surgery. But are we willing to do that and be dependent upon God and get rid of those things? 
Little children matter to Jesus and have a part in his kingdom. The lowest in culture and society, where they're little children, whoever it may be, they matter to Jesus and they have a part of God's kingdom. And we've been clearly warned by Jesus that causing these little ones to stumble, causing anyone to stumble who believes in him, there's, there's a price to be paid. Now, I, wanna, I want you to think about something, and I, I don't know if this is right or not, but it's, for the first time I thought about this in this passage The earliest form of a child developing is where? In a womb. That's exactly right. Think about that. That's that's how God chose to create us, to bring life to us, for us to be formed inside of our mother's womb. God made that process. He created that process. And then I thought, in the last few decades in this country, 60 million babies, while they were developing that God created them for the purpose of being a part of His kingdom work somewhere in the world, 60 million were decided that they didn't need to be a part. And they were killed before they even got out of their mom's womb. That staggers me. Staggers me. Jesus didn't say anything directly about abortion. Do you think Jesus would consider abortion causing one of these little ones to stumble? I do. Absolutely. And that says we need to change our thinking. Now, I know there's going to be some of you today, and there will be people who go, oh, you, you're, just, you, you're a man. How dare you tell a woman what she can do with her body? How dare you? And what about rape? What about incest? And that's always brought up when it's less than 5%, and that's probably high. But 95% of babies in Utah, your body, Paul said, and he said clearly in God's word, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And when we believe the sanctity of life is just a choice that we make, how much more... I mean, that baby doesn't have a choice at all. And for us to cause them to stumble before they even come out, we need to rethink how we think. Our country and individuals. And realize how precious life is at the very beginning. And that's how God brought us all into the world. That's how Jesus came into the world. We must become like a little child, humbly trusting and dependent upon God in all aspects of our life and recognizing we're dependent upon God. He is the creator. We are not the creator. We don't get to decide all these things. We need to humbly go to him and say, God, what should I think? What should I do in this situation? There was an arrogant guy named Malcolm Muggeridge, who worked for the BBC, did a lot of documentaries, and he was really good, but he was very arrogant. And he was not a believer, and he really hated the church. He thought the church was a joke. But he had the opportunity to go to India and make a BBC documentary on Mother Teresa, and he met her, and he was completely captivated by her deep compassion for the poorest of the poor in those Calcutta slums. But he was an unbeliever, and he could not accept her faith. But what especially held him back, like I said, was his dislike for for the church. He says it was such an imperfect and flawed institution. He just couldn't be a part of it. And Mother Teresa, after doing that documentary, came back to England at some point, and he had an opportunity to visit with her. And they went on a walk, and he says, I took up my well-prepared defense position about the church whose deficiencies crumbling barricades and woeful future prospects I expounded upon with little effect to Mother Teresa. 
After she left London, she wrote him a letter and sent him a devotional guide. And here's what was in her letter. I think I understand you better now. I don't know why, but you, to me, are like Nicodemus. And I'm sure the answer is the same, unless you become like a little child. I'm sure you will understand beautifully everything if you would only become a little child in God's hands. Your longing for God is so deep, and yet He keeps Himself away from you. He must be forcing Himself to do so because He loves you so much as to give Jesus to die for you and for me. Christ is longing to be your food, surrounded with fullness of living food. You allow yourself to starve. The personal love Christ has for you is infinite. The small difficulty you have regarding His church is finite. Overcome the finite with the infinite. Christ has created you because He wanted you. I know that you feel terrible, longing with this dark emptiness, and yet He is the one who is in love with you. I mean, we knew Mother Teresa was good, right? But golly, why did she take the time to write somebody who was so against the church and her faith? But what did she tell him? You got to change your thinking, change and become like a little child. Well, the good news of the gospel is eight years before he died, it was a process like it is for lots of us. Malcolm Muggeridge accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And guess what? He joined that messed up church and became a part of it before he died. He finally changed his way of thinking. He changed and humbled himself as a child. And maybe today there's some of us, maybe there's somebody here that we need to change our thinking, and it is a process. Jesus understands that. And we need to become like a little child, but we have to humbly submit and recognize he is not only the creator of the universe, but he is the creator of us, and he is the one who died for us. That's how much he loves us. Just like Mother Teresa said, he is the one in love with us and wants relationship with us.